You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and its select theaters. Rated R. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature. Part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. Today we're going to continue our series on magic because I want to talk about some famous people within that area of study. But I feel like there's too much legend and lore surrounding some of these figures that doesn't give them their proper historical context. So in this episode, we're going to begin a conversation with religious studies expert John Crow about theosophy. But we'll be touching on spiritualism, Masonic rites, and many other topics. Our goal here is to get to the life of Aleister Crowley. But before we can do that, I think we need to understand the world he grew up in. Also, just a quick note, uh, I believe his name is pronounced Crowley, as uh, Robert Anton Wilson constantly reminds me. It's supposed to rhyme with holy. But uh, at some points during the interview, I do say Crowley. My apologies, but I can't get that Ozzy Osbourne song out of my head anyway. Uh, a bit of quick, sad monster news. We want to note the passing of Dr. John Bendernagel, a biologist who spent many years researching Bigfoot stories. I had the chance to exchange a few emails with him, and he was always very polite and friendly. And while I never met him in person, I certainly had come to know him by way of his many documentary and book appearances. So rest in peace, Dr. Bendernagel. Now, let's learn more about the strange history of esoteric beliefs in Western culture with John Crow. Monster Talk. Welcome to Monster Talk, John Crow. Um, I don't think my listeners, well, some of them might know you, but uh, would you mind doing an introduction for yourself? Absolutely. Um, I have um, a background in religious studies, and so I've uh, actually got a master's degree in Western esotericism from uh, the University of Amsterdam, in at which... I wrote a uh, thesis looking at the history of occultism um, and focusing in particular on the relationship between theosophy, occultism, in the person of Alan Bennett, who was Aleister Crowley's teacher in the Golden Dawn and who later became a Buddhist monk and tried to bring um, Buddhism to England. And then I got my uh, PhD at Florida State University in religious studies, American religious history, focusing on uh, theosophy again and how Eastern traditions came into the United States with with a particular uh, method of looking at the interaction between religion and science and how that played out in the human body and how people define their bodies. So I've had a, a long history of looking at the subject of occultism, um, how it arose the kind of influences it had in Western culture and uh, particular people within the tradition, especially in Theosophy, Golden Dawn, and the Thelemic, uh, the Thelemic Current. Which, uh, so for our listeners, uh, the reason I've asked you to come and join us today for this episode is to talk about 
well, initially I contacted you in regards to Aleister Crowley. I'd asked Joe Laycock if he knew anybody who would be a good person to talk to. And I, I was, Crowley is uh, such an interesting figure in, in the, in the history of magic that I, I just didn't feel like I, I could find a good sort of neutral authority, or I wasn't able to on my own, and, and, and Joe referred me to you. But you, I don't think it's coincidence, but b- because it's the same sort of related topics, you also have a, a really nice uh, uh, understanding and education about the sort of context of Crowley within the whole history of esotericism. And I, I wanted to be able to give Crowley context and you really seem well suited to do that. So I'm hoping that we can sort of talk through that and understand who he was and his impact, uh, on magic and really on sort of pop culture as, as well as how he fit into this, this, uh, I don't know what to call it, except esotericism, occultism, um, this, this, this trend that happened in, in, at least from my perspective, from the mid 1800s into the early 20th century, but seems to really still be going on in a lot of ways. So absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, his influence is, is still felt today. I mean, you can Google uh, his name or his books on Amazon and they're still widely available and people still make a lot of reference to him. He's especially influential in, in various kinds of artistic endeavors, music, uh, visual art, film, uh, theater. So it, you know he he has a long legacy. All right, well let's let's get started with um, the uh, sort of to give it context the the sort of the rise of occultism in Western Europe. Where where did this come from? Like why did this happen? Where, what what's the source of all this? Well, I I think if we look at occultism and its origins, as many of your guests have pointed out, these phenomena these uh, ways of seeing the world uh, go way, way back in human history. Uh, occultism, in many ways, is just the modern manifestation of these esoteric currents, and in particular, the one that kind of arose out of the negotiation with science in the 19th century. Uh, I would say occultism doesn't even go back to the early modern period where we see the shift from uh, a, a kind of natural philosophy um, responding to Protestantism and the Reformation. And so you start to see different ways of looking at the world. Uh, you don't have science yet. Uh, this doesn't exist. But you have new ways of uh, looking at the relationship between the divine and the world around us prior to the early modern period and when natural philosophy was predominant, uh, there was this assumed relationship between the, the, the divine, the celestial realm, and the physical realm. And then when we start getting into the early modern period with a lot of the people that we think about, Bacon and, and so forth, they start saying, well, what's the best way to investigate these things? And so they start uh, figuring out different kinds of uh, methods, induction and testing and things like that. And so you get proto-science there. But you really don't get the full flourishing of what we would call science until you get into the 19th century. I mean, the term scientist wasn't um, coined until the 1830s. Uh, so it's, it's really this modern notion of testability um, reproducibility, objectivity, um, that, that people could trust their senses. That was also a, an important development in the scientific method is that people could actually believe what they see and that objectivity depends upon the reliability of our senses. And this was not always uh, taken to be true. So there was a lot of small pieces that were developing um, at different times that all came together. And we also need to keep in mind that even the science that arose in the 19th century, the scientific method that they used, uh, even uh, going back to Crowley where he talks about the method of science, the aim of religion, the method that they were using in the 19th century would not be acceptable to science today. Uh, And if we talk about spiritualism and the kind of uh, impulse to test spiritualism, 
the kinds of testings that they were doing, the experiments in the 1850s, when scientists look at those notes, diagrams, descriptions, and results today, they don't find them reliable because the kinds of methods that they used that, that at the time was science uh, is not um, acceptable today. So we really should understand that this is an evolving method and an evolving way of looking at the the world. And we should be reticent about taking our frames of reference and our terms that we use now and projecting them backwards in time because it really distorts and um, misrepresents the way people thought and acted and saw the world around them. So I, I think maybe for our listeners, it might be a good idea to give a little, a few examples of what I'm, at least what I'm thinking about. So we've got, uh, there are secret societies, our mm -hmm. closed societies like the uh, Masons. Um, and then there was, an, I guess at one point, an actual a group called the Illuminati, which existed, I guess, at least for a little while with Weishaupt. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have in the mid-1800s, you get the rise of spiritualism. And mm -hmm. we can talk about that a little bit. But that was, uh, I guess, a, a combination of religious and social movement in some sense. Then we also have the rise of theosophy. And by the end of the 1800s, I, I want to talk a little bit about things like the Golden Dawn and the OTO. But, mm -hmm. And then eventually from there, we'll move into Crowley. Got it. But um, those are there's a lot of terms and, and groups to throw out the name of. But I, 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 when we talked before, a little bit before this interview, I, I didn't think about the, uh, the impact of uh, Masonic groups. But I think maybe we should mention those as well. So, Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. So we get the rise of uh, speculative masonry in the 1700s, as you noted. But we really want to make sure we understand that, that there are different types of mes uh, masonry arising at different times. So the masonry that arises in England in the early 1700s uh, and is brought to the colonies – uh, is what's called today Blue Lodge Masonry. It's the first three degrees. And that is the standard masonry that everybody knows that anybody who's a mason will have gone through those three degrees. And the degrees make a person a master mason. Now, in current Freemasonry, once you're a master mason, you can go in different directions, do York Rite, Scottish Rite, follow those through, and you could even get to um, other rites outside of masonry proper, such as the Shriners and so forth. But when masonry first came to the colonies and spread, it was these first three degrees. Meanwhile, you have uh, in Germany, in South Germany, Weishaupt, as you noted, uh, was anti-Catholic, anti-the um, powers that be, and so he tried to create a group and – that eventually was found out and it was suppressed. So the connection between the two and why people still think that the Illuminati exists and so forth um, is due to this book by a guy called Robinson. Um, are you familiar with this history? Even okay. if I were, I think we should probably go ahead and explain. Okay. <laughs> so people are familiar with Morse code, Samuel Morris, but his father was a minister in Massachusetts named uh, Jedediah Morse. And Jedediah Morse discovered a book uh, by John Robinson called Proofs of a Conspiracy Against All Religions and Governments of Europe, carried on in the secret meetings of Freemasons, Illuminati, and Reading Society. Catchy title. Yeah. <laughs> and this book is is widely available online. You can go to uh, something like archive.org and download a PDF of it or Google Books or something. Uh, it's it's widely available. And but at the time, it was only available in certain cities that were uh, getting shipments from the UK. And Robinson got a copy of this, read it, and he was deeply moved that there was a conspiracy against republicanism. And so he started preaching from his pulpit about this conspiracy, and he started going and making uh, speeches to Masons. And the one thing that Robinson was doing was he was seeing what we now call Scottish Rite Freemasonry. And 
this is the issue with uh, communication at the time. We have almost instant communication, but in the 1700s, that wasn't the case. So you had developing in France Scottish Rite Freemasonry. I know it sounds strange that it developed in France, but it did. And it did not make its way to England directly. It actually had a very circuitous route of going through the Caribbean, through South Carolina, New York, and then finally to the UK. And so you end up having the situation where in continental Europe, they're practicing these extended degrees of masonry. Those extended degrees of masonry come to the United States, but they're not in the UK yet. And so you have Morse asking masons about these degrees, um, and they don't know anything about them. He starts showing pamphlets in, in, of these degrees that were uh, from France. Um, again, nobody knows anything about them. So he starts claiming that there is this big conspiracy. Uh, he publishes pamphlets, and these, again, can be uh, Googled. Uh, they're all... Scottish Rite Freemasonry. And so it's a real um, confusion about what's going on, but it sets this foundation for claims that the Illuminati still exists. And so it's really from this book, Miscommunication and Suspicion, uh, which has been present in American society uh, from the beginning, this suspicion of government, um, of suppression and so forth, that sets the foundation for this Illuminati conspiracy and builds on Freemasonry. Well, what's also happening in parallel with this uh, Freemasonry is the rise of additional rites. In, instead of just York and Scottish Rite, which are traditional Masonry today, you get all these spin-off rites. Um, and so you start also seeing competition between France and uh, England and other places that are creating their own rights too for nationalistic reasons. So you get the uh, ancient and primitive rights of Memphis and Mitzrium. You get all of these other rights and all of them are kind of circulating around and people are participating in them in the 1800s. People are uh, getting multiple degrees and certificates. And this is the kind of foundation of uh, Masonic ideas floating around that really gives the foundation in which groups like Theosophy, Golden Dawn, and the OTO arose. They're all based on these kind of uh, fringe or alternative kinds of Freemasonry. And so when, we, uh, if, when you start looking directly at especially the rites of the Golden Dawn and the OTO, uh, they're very Masonic. And if you look at Theosophy... Its original structure under Blavatsky was not Freemasonic. Uh, well, actually, it was. It did have three degrees. It had a, a, a oath that you had to take and secrecy. Uh, but these were then shifted into the esoteric section. Um, and so Masonry is the, the underlying framework, uh, so much so that under the leadership of uh, Annie Besant, the second president of the Theosophical Society, they create co-Masonry, which is both male and female. Um, and there were types of female Freemasonry prior to co-Masonry, uh, lodges of adoption and, and other circumstances. But this is the, the really the foundation in which all of these rites, all of these organizations, and in many cases, uh, occultism arose uh, in Europe and in the United States. So when I think of, of Masonry as, as an outsider, I usually think about it in terms of being secretive and perhaps holding on to uh, hidden wisdom uh, is what, what is masonry? Like what, what for listeners who aren't familiar with it outside of this sort of uh, that context or the way you see it spoken of on these sort of history channel TV shows, what, what I, I know it's a sort of a fraternal group, but what, what is it exactly? What are they doing? Well, it's, it's no one thing. It's, it's been a number of things over time. Um, and just to be clear, I, I am not a Freemason. I've, I've not taken any initiations in Freemasonry, although I've 
read a lot of their material, and one of the things that they're very clear about is they claim that they're not a secret society. They claim that they are a society with secrets. And so they want to make a distinction between the fact that being a Mason, people are open about it, that the lodges and uh, temples and all of the things that are associated with Masonry are very public, that they don't hide their membership, that they constantly invite the public in. So they're not a secret society in that sense, that they're trying to hide that their existence or their influence. Um, and so, but they do turn around and say, look, the secrets are an integral part of what bind us together in the uh, the ceremonies and the experiences that every Mason has. And again, every Mason who is a, a, a master Mason has gone through that initiatory experience, and they all are very similar um, across the world. And so there's this experiential unity that they have within the organization. Uh, and part of that is getting secrets, and those secrets are based on ideas about morality and conduct and um, serving each other. But if we go back to the beginning of what Masonry started as, uh, it was much more social. It, it was a um, kind of a, a group of uh, middle class and elite men who would get together and have banquets and, and parades through town and things like that. By the time you get into the 1800s, there's a um, – especially in the United States, there's an incident called the, the Morgan Affair where – uh, there's a, a guy in New York named Morgan who claims he's going to um, create or publish a book that has all the Masonic secrets. Um, he disappears and is presumed murdered. Uh, and then because of the position of Freemasonry uh, within the society, all the politicians, the judges, the police, everybody's a Freemason. Uh, there's all this, again, suspicion. And then the, the, People who um, were claimed or charged with uh, Morgan's murder were not convicted. The jury was full of Masons, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a big public outcry about it. Uh, and this actually leads to the first third party of the United States, the Anti-Masonic Party, which arose in the 1830s. Uh, and they're the first group to create a third party and a platform and to have meetings of that platform which people to get together and have a political convention and so forth and even the political conventions that we have today every few years uh with the the democratic party and the republican libertarians and all the other um political parties how they're formatted what they do having a platform getting together the speeches all that is still based on the format that was created in the 1830s for the anti-masonic party and so the anti-Masonic movement arises and pushes back against this kind of influence, uh, and Masonry changes and becomes a much more um, social and fraternal uh, environment. The other thing it's doing all along is it is a mutual support organization. There was no social net. There was no insurance. So people would join Freemasonry knowing that if they died – that the organization would, A, pay for their burial, and B, support their widow and children. This was really important because if the, the male was the only person who earned money and they died, that would leave the wife and children destitute. And so Freemasonry offered an opportunity to make sure that there was at least the minimal support for their family. And so they would pay dues into this and then – through that, charity would take care of Masonic uh, burial and so forth. So we can see how this is in shifting priorities, uh, public relations and so forth. Uh, and to get to the modern period where now there's such a, a social network, um, people are connecting. They don't need the social net that, um, that Freemasonry in many ways is uh, very much in the decline. Uh, it's not very popular for young people. Um, and is really uh, losing uh, its foundation within the societies uh, of the Western world, I should say, um, that, that it had over the last few centuries. 
you know, it's interesting. I, I was wondering if it was maybe going to bounce back. You you see the sort of like hipster people with the, their fancy mustaches and, and big beards. That it, This is another one of those sort of retro things that seems like it might get some increased cultural cachet just because it's old, you know? I, 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 I was curious if that would actually happen. So. I mean, the future is 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 open for lots of people to enter Freemasonry and change it. And we and that's the point we should keep in mind is that Freemasonry has not been this static organization. It's been dramatically shaped by the generations of men and associated women who have really changed the the fabric of the organization. I mean, at the end of the 1800s, there was a movement to create all of these new rituals for different kinds of Freemasonries to make different lines of Freemasonry. Um, there's a book called The Cyclopedia of Freemasonry by a guy named McKenzie. Uh, he, he documents this proliferation of fringe rites and uh, ritual. Uh, the, it's very, very popular, um, and there are some scholars who theorize that what's going on here is we're seeing a huge shift from agrarian society to an urban society. What it means in terms of masculinity is in flux, and so many men see Freemasonry at the end of the 1800s as an opportunity to engage in um, masculine um, to create a masculine space to make some kinds of morals and rites and uh, ritual um, to redefine what it means to be masculine. Uh, and so we see that, that kind of negotiation happening uh, due to the rise of, of modernism and, um, and the shift to urban environments. I, it's very interesting to me, although I haven't spent as much time uh, actually reading about it or looking into it uh, despite the way it overlaps with so many of my other sort of uh, fringe topic uh, interests. But the, uh, the fact that I guess originally it came out of masonry, like in the actual building sense uh, and then became something quite different over time. Um, is that accurate or is that your understanding that that's that, that, that part of the, the history of the, of the group is actually real, that it really did, uh, uh, sort of come out of the uh, keeping the knowledge uh, necessary for building, uh, you know, I, that was my understanding. It was like tied into the journeyman, you know, uh, idea of like, if you're going to learn a trade, you have to keep that trade information within the group so that it doesn't escape. I don't know if that's real or not though. That's, <laughs> I think, I think it, in practical sense, it is real. If we look back at, um, earlier times than the early modern period when you have people who could, who would travel and would claim certain things, uh, including certain, the knowledge to build um, and, and therefore get employment. Right. Um, so the passwords and, and so forth was a mechanism by which somebody could enter a place that is new, locate fellow uh, tradesmen, reveal their knowledge uh, with passwords and then therefore be certified by the local tradesmen that this person is aware of things because they gave certain proofs uh, through their association and, and their knowledge. So uh, it was more of a certification process in practice in the early times and it became speculative masonry in the uh, 18th century because uh, you saw the involvement of people who uh, saw the structure as useful, but were not interested in the skills per se, but saw the symbolism and so forth as, as something that they could build upon to make yeah. this the, the, other kind of organization. That rise of the middle class and, and that sort of tie in there. That's that's really interesting. Um, so you get masonry, uh, you've got that existing, but – then the uh, in, in my not necessarily directly related sort of thing, we've got this rise of this idea of spiritualism. So yes, it's chronologically related, but I don't. <laughs> I don't. Well, think it's they're they're happening in parallel, and yeah. that and this is the thing that a lot of there's a lot of balls that get juggling in the air, and you kind of have to see that there are these 
multiple currents that, and this is the term that's often used within uh, the study of esotericism, you get what are called currents, uh, and quite frequently the currents are overlapping or uh, people who are involved with one become interested in another. So you have, in in one sense, this, um, you know, to go back to science, you have uh, Mesmer, who was a German, who claimed that there was this uh, universal fluid and that he could influence people and heal them. Um, he finds success for a while in France. Um, he's giving training in this to people, uh, and they end up taking it into other places, including the United States. So you have this one current of uh, what is mesmerism, which turns into uh, hypnotism, mental healing, Christian science, new thought. So that's this one current. And then you have another current of liberal Protestantism and uh, Quakers and, and other kinds of liberal Protestants who are open to different ways of uh, interacting with the spiritual world. And then you also have uh, within there a subcurrent of Swedenborgianism. I don't know if you're familiar with Emanuel Swedenborg. So he, no, I don't think he so. was a, a, a Swedish um, uh, engineer. I, f I forget exactly what his trade was, but he was also a mystic. And so he ended up ha um, having a lot of mystical experiences in which he would travel to other places and interact with the entities that were there, the various angels and so forth. Uh, and he founded what is called the New Church. Um, but his writings about kind of his travels to the other world were hugely influential because uh, if we look back at the time of uh, mysticism from the early medieval period all the way up to the early modern, it's not very worldly. You get this kind of... Uh, Vague uh, feelings, imagery, but nothing that is described as, you know, just taking a stroll in the park. But that's exactly how Swedenborg talks about the other world. So Swedenborg sets this tradition in which people can go to the other world, and the other world looks a lot like this one. Whereas in the various kinds of uh, early... Um, and I'll probably mispronounce it, the halakha uh, of uh, Judaism. It's the it's kind of based on the Enoch and his chariot, uh, and it's the the kind of mysticism that's there. That later uh, we get a different kind of Jewish mysticism in Kabbalah. We get various kinds of Christian mysticism, uh, Islamic mysticism, and and all of these different kinds of um, expressions. They're not talking about like what it's like to be in the real world. Uh, but Swedenborg is. He describes going to different planets, meeting different angels. He describes what they look like, what they're wearing, where they live, what they talk like, what they're interested in. It's, it's almost like uh, travel narratives where people – and this was something that was very common. People would take a trip somewhere, uh, maybe somewhere to Asia or – um, in the Pacific or something, and then they would come back and write a book about it and just talk about their travel narratives, what they saw, who they interacted with, what they thought, what what they ate. Uh, and, and Swedenborg's discussions of the other world were similar. And I mentioned that current because once you get these notions of uh, the ability to interact with the spirit world, once the spirit world becomes a reflection of this world, um, it sets the stage for liberal Protestants to adopt spiritualism. Um, this arose in uh, 1849 with uh, the Fox sisters in upstate New York interacting with a ghost. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse, carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see, we could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. 
Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audio book. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand and probably won't That's our whole show. (laughs) So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Uh, Supposedly a a beggar was uh, buried in the uh, basement of their home, and then they start hearing knockings. They develop a system of knocking. Uh, This is then picked up uh, within their community. In fact, some Quakers are the ones who first heard about the knockings and thought this is uh, proof of the other world and therefore set up the exhibitions of it. But from that point, spiritualism exploded. Uh, And one of the things we also need to keep in mind about spiritualism is that its political influence was that anybody could be a medium. You didn't have to go to training. You didn't have to do seminary. You didn't have to do anything as a natural phenomenon people could be mediums and communicate with spirits and therefore it was very democratizing uh, open to any person and in fact it was very common for women to take on the roles of mediums Uh, and and by gender definitions of the time women were seen as actually uh, better able to communicate with the spirit world uh, by their own constitution, uh, the way that gender was constructed at that time, uh, they were more by nature open to spirit. And so spiritualism becomes this huge uh, influence in the U.S. and then spreads to Europe. Uh, It gets combined in different places. By the time it hits France, you get uh, Kardec with uh, spiritism. Uh, So he's adding a a Freemasonic element and also uh, some other currents. Uh, so you get this big kind of uh, soup, and this is the environment in which theosophy arises. Excellent. And I wanted to just point out that uh, as we talk through these topics, I don't think any of these ideas are dead. I think a lot of these ideas are still out there. These groups are still active. And it's it's kind of easy to think about these things in a historical context. But a lot of these things still have an impact uh, on things right now. I'll give you a good example, or at least one I think is very interesting, is um, the movie Ghostbusters. Um, I I love the movie Ghostbusters, but Dan Aykroyd, his family was heavily involved in spiritualism, and still is. And I think you could draw direct lines from the fact that the Fox sisters had their experiences and started this movement to the fact that we get to enjoy the movie Ghostbusters, for those of us who do, because... That's really Dan's family. That's that's those those stories about spiritualism come right out of his experiences being raised in a family that was actively involved in that. Spiritualism is is very present today. There are numerous spiritualist churches all throughout the United States. Uh, I, I would say areas in which it's more common than others include um, uh, the the West Coast, Florida, uh, New England, but um, the there's a spiritualist, large spiritualist community in New York, um, Lilydale, yep. New York. And, and there's also a, a huge spiritualist camp in um, uh, central Florida called uh, Casadega. Uh, and there's multiple other ones throughout uh, the United States. So spiritualism hasn't gone away. Um, and, and the ideas in which it participated – hasn't gone away. They're very much present. They get combined and and transferred into other things. Uh, um, if you uh, if your guests have ever watched, um, uh, what is it, uh, Teresa Caputo, the uh, Long, Long Island, Island medium? medium. Yep, yep. Yes, she's a spiritualist through and through. Everything that she does is exactly how the spiritualist 
mediums uh, began to operate once they moved away from having seance tables and so forth. Oh, and uh, also it, it ties into the uh, Society for Psychical Research as well. So the SPR. Uh, uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, that, that's the thing. This is such a, a huge uh, influence on uh, our society, the, on our history. The, the kind of mar um, notions that these things are marginal, uh, it, it just does not recognize the breadth and, and depth of their penetration within our culture. They pop up uh, in, in ways that you don't expect. Like well, the first time I saw that Long Island Medium show, I thought, oh, wow, that's pretty different. Uh, who knew that there was going to be a show about that? And then I find out. Well, actually, there's dozens of this, and it's been going on for a long time. Um, and and the same thing with the ghost hunting shows; those kinds of uh, things um, are, are very very common, and they follow the same kind of patterns that we can see in the the um, psychical research that you mentioned. Yes, yes, and um, I, I I think uh, so. When you get into television, you get this sort of uh issue with uh it, it seems like it's had a, in my opinion a negative impact on the scientific interpretation or evaluation of these ideas so uh unfortunately i think it's led to a lot of modern ghost hunting groups effectively just doing what we would call live action role-playing versions of ghost hunting instead of actually looking at this deep history of of scientific inquiry into these questions or if not scientific as you know uh religiously uh based inquiries but there is a lot more to the history than you know what i guess the way uh the uh the ghost hunter show with the plumbers sort of started out this reality television interpretation so right yeah. but i i think that's interesting that you mentioned that's the plumbers right cuz i want to i want to contrast that with the uh, the show that I guess was no longer around, the one that was ghost hunting based on Penn, out of Penn State or something like that? Paranormal State, yeah. Paranormal so, State. Yeah, we okay. could absolutely talk about that, yeah. So the fact that you have plumbers turned ghost investigators, uh, and that series has continued, and I guess uh, I'm under the impression that the uh, per the original participants have since broken up and now that they have multiple shows or something like that. They've had spinoffs, right? Ghost Hunters International and some other things. So, yeah. And yet Penn, the one based at Penn State has stopped. Right, right. Uh, so, Kevin, where people who don't have qualifications, institutional association, they're continuing, but those that did, didn't make it in the marketplace. And I think there's there's an interesting twist there, right? Because if you're actually going to be doing real science, more often than not, you're associated with some kind of institution of higher learning or government association or funded uh, private organization. Uh, and that ghost hunting show was associated with that for a while and then was closed down. And then you have on the other side the do-it-yourself, um, self-made ghost hunters, um, which don't have any scientific credentials behind them they're popular and continuing I th and i think that mirrors what's going on in society that they don't want their institutions to be involved in those kinds of topics because they're disreputable whereas it's okay for plumbers to go looking at ghostbuster i mean ghosts because they're plumbers what do they know about science uh the, the uh, paranormal state tv show uh, was a college club. So you can start a club on just about anything. And mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the Penn State uh, group uh, led by Ryan, Ryan I, Buell. The, yeah, bless the, his heart. Uh, you know, I, he uh, has had some uh, complicated life issues uh, since that show ended uh, involving uh, drugs and fraud and some other things. So I, I, you know, I hope he's getting his life straightened out because uh, that's, you know, uh, those things can really be disruptive in your life. But um, regardless of that, that has that no bearing on on whether uh, these things are real or not. I just I feel bad for him because uh, you 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 if you're a student in college and you get onto a TV show, you can get fame and that sort of thing. But there's not I don't think they pay a lot of money uh, to these reality star people. I mean, you know, 
if you have a good agent, you can sort of work some things out. But um, there was a, a lot of very questionable things happening on that TV show. Mm-hmm. And um, it's one of my pet peeves because um, the uh, their alleged psychic uh, was uh, also involved in uh, uh, a TV show about uh, psychic kids. And it felt very exploitative to me. And I just, I always worry about kids who uh, might be being exploited for, uh, you know, entertainment purposes in, in ways that maybe aren't uh, in their best interest psychologically, <laughs> if that makes sense. Yes. So well, I, I, I think there's a long history of children being involved in the in media and having negative uh, results. From uh, absolutely. It. And that, that's, that's all the way up to the most, you know, uh, reputable, uh, you know, institutions like uh, big giant movie corporations who unfortunately uh, put kids into the spotlight and then dump them when they're not cute anymore, that sort of thing. So th- there's a lot of things going on there. But uh, well, I don't, I don't yeah. think that diminishes the the point that you had one show that was even if it was nominally associated with uh, institution of higher learning, I I would venture to guess that that gave that show some legitimacy um and regardless of it ended because the they pulled the plug on the 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 club or because the main um protagonist had a um personal issues yeah yeah uh it it doesn't change the fact that there isn't any other organization that is jumping at being on those shows exactly that's true it's true yeah It, it it's really an issue of perception of, of marginalization and so forth. And while it's widely common and it, uh, if you go and stop a dozen people on the street and ask them if they believe in ghosts, believe in the ability to talk to spirits and the dead, uh, I would say the majority of them would say yes. The fact is though, that institutions want to appear scientific. They want to have that kind of method behind what they do. Uh, and, as much as these individuals want to claim that there's a scientific basis, everything they're doing is logical, but it's based or, or founded all on an illogical uh, or a non-provable uh, basis. Yeah. And, and, and that's the interesting thing. I mean, you can follow logic of all of these different groups, but they're always starting from a point in which there's no logic there's no proof you either just have to take it as faith or some kind of assertion from a higher power or transcendent source uh, and that's the the same thing that's happening with theosophy and the golden dawn uh and and so forth even to the oto with crowley and his revelations at, at some core starting point uh, in the case of theosophy, you have the masters, so you have the claim that there are these Himalayan uh, masters living out in Tibet that are connected to this larger tradition of ancient wisdom going back to the past, and that they and two of them uh, have decided that they're going to help this uh, group of people bring this ancient wisdom to the forefront of society, uh, and in doing so they build this huge structure of knowledge and understanding and claims about the world and interaction between Eastern and Western religion and all of this. Uh, And, you know, they do it in a very systematic way that looks very scientific, but it's all based on this foundation of revelation from a higher power, in this case, the masters. Uh, And the same thing with the golden dawn. You get a lot of claims about, knowledge and uh, logical proceedings through different understandings of symbolism and so forth. But it's all predicated on this kind of founding myth and that Egyptian magic was real and that Freemasonry has a secret and all of these uh, assertions and claims that cannot be proven. Yeah, it's 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 very hard to get anybody to start with the null hypothesis, right? Yeah, <laughs> that that's a uh, it's not as interesting, I think, maybe for uh, for TV shows. But uh, th- there's the other problem is that uh, I think people look at these TV shows and perceive them as being uh, legitimate scientific inquiry. Now, 
not within my circle of friends, you know, you know, <laughs> uh, but, but it's common. I run into people all the time who, who think that these ghost TV shows are doing science. And, um, I think Sharon Hill, uh, one of my colleagues and friends says, uh, she calls it sounding science uh, right. Where they, they, they seem like they sort of put on the trappings of science, but they're not actually executing a scientific. Exactly. Right. Yeah. They have all this equipment and they can document things and they're acquiring proof. Proof of, of what? I mean, they're they're definitely employing the rhetoric of science, the appearance of science, but they're they're basing it on things that can't be proven. And uh, and this was always what I thought was strange about the end goal. So, okay, the the show caught a ghost on tape. It appears some anomalous thing happened. Okay. And so then they go to the uh, the group or the, the people or the location owner uh, and say, this is what we got. See, look, this anomaly happened and it's on tape. And they're like, okay, then what? Nothing. The show's over and they go on and do it again. Time for the next one, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. So it, there's never any build on that, right? So that's not what science is doing. There's no culmination of the evidence, analysis, publishing, uh, presenting, and then having other people examine the evidence and debating uh, pres- them trying to replicate things. None of that happens. They're just like, oh, look what we got on tape. Isn't that spooky? Okay, next show. Yeah. I think there's a flaw there, right? <laughs> right, because the, the, they don't, it, they're not interested in actually following through. They, and they're also being kind of sloppy in the fact that they're just saying, well, here's the evidence. You know, you can draw your own conclusions. Again, that's not what scientists do. They draw conclusions. They, get, they lay out why they're doing it and, and what their ideas behind it and what their theories are and how they're testing those theories. And it's all... Right there, plain and simple, so that people can try to replicate it or not. And if it's not replicable, then it, you know, it's it's questionable on whether it's actually true. Yes, it, and it is a pet peeve that we, I guess, we've revisited here many times, but uh, it bears repeating. So, um, I, I, I perfect, you know, I absolutely support serious scientific inquiry into these matters and there are a few places where that still happens but it's rare uh and i think part of that is because there's been such extensive research without real results uh but most people don't know about that work and uh i think that's why i think it's important that the spr and those sort of groups and uh CSI and, and these American skeptic groups and the European skeptic groups. Uh, I, th- I think it's good that they continue to do these inquiries and question, uh, because these are questions amazingly that I think most people believe have been sufficiently answered by religion. Uh, I think most people believe in the continued existence of human consciousness or a soul or something like that. And the fact that science doesn't support that or hasn't been able to, uh, uh, you know, prove it uh, doesn't really have any impact on whether or not people believe it. Um, and you know, I, I that I this show Monster Talk is not really about proving that or not proving that, but it is. I think we are more interested in how does one conduct these inquiries and the histories of these inquiries, which uh, kind of brings us back to uh, the rise of these uh, other groups outside of uh, the spiritualist movement and the SPR and um, if. If I could just make one more comment about this that sure goes the other way, though. Okay. So in 2011, there was a, uh, a, a journal called the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. And they uh, uh, were okay with publishing a paper um, that was looking at ESP. And it went through all the proper channels of peer review and testing and and basically the paper was arguing that there was a statistical uh, anomaly or statistical reason to think that there was something paranormal going on that could not be explained. Is this the one with the uh, computer uh, test where they were uh, uh, statistically uh, getting more hits uh, and it seemed like there might have been some sort of precognitions or thing going on. 
No, it's um. There was a professor. I th- I think his name was um. Bem or something like that, uh, and he was testing. Bim. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was testing whether students could accurately sense random events. Maybe uh, it might be like the computer doing something. Um, and and he did multiple experiments, and I guess the results were what he claimed. Um, and so it went through peer review, and it was going to be published. Uh, and people responded saying it should not be published. Like, that the fact that it's about ESP in the first place should have precluded it being published. Um regardless of what the data was, regardless of the methodology. And that to me, again, is wrong because that is against what the point of science is about. Maybe Bem's conclusions were false. Maybe his uh, experiments were flawed and therefore it gave results that were uh, inaccurate. But it went through the peer review process. He made his argument and it was going to be published uh, and then it created this big hoopla. And I saw people complaining about, well, this is the failure of peer review, uh, that it should never be published. And then some people saying, well, it should be published, analyzed, attempted to be replicated, and then evaluated on that. And that's the position that I think is the real scientific one. Because if you've already excluding things because of just their nature. Right. And a priori, I don't just, dis- I disagree with the premise, therefore don't do the work. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and that to me is more of an ideological and, um, kind of, uh, almost in some sense, a scientism, a religion of science yes. saying, you know, we don't, we don't do that. Uh, that's, that's the wrong direction for me so that's really interesting because i I think uh one of the problems i have well not not me in particular but it is a scientism is a real issue uh and and then having a uh a preconceived notion you're biased against these things don't even bother doing any experiments that sort of thing there have been lots and lots of experiments but i my personal view this is me not the skeptic society or skeptic magazine or that other stuff i you know I do this show independently, but I, you know, my view is if you can get the funding together, do the experiments. You know, I, I think there's nothing wrong with doing these questions, but there's many people who I agree have come to the conclusion these things aren't real and therefore why bother? But I, I, I don't, I don't care for that myself. I agree. The scientism problem, uh, is real. Uh, I, I am a big cheerleader and fan of science and the scientific method. But I also agree that um, if you are not willing to apply these uh, to these questions, then you're not really doing a good service, I think. And I'm not sure that I worded that very well. But my point is uh, there are real issues with science when you're questioning things that are paranormal. So, for example, if you look at um, the idea of um, Popper's falsifiability, in a, in a real sense, science is a filter. And if one of your criteria is that it be reproducible um, and, you know, other people can do the same experiment and get the same results, there's many aspects to alleged paranormal phenomena that don't lend themselves to reproducibility. Uh, exactly. You know, if you're, if you're trying to test a ghost case, uh, uh, you know, unless you're doing something like the stone tape where, you know, the idea that it's going to be reproduced at the same place at the same time and anybody can come in and see it, uh, most of the time, you're looking at really uh, irregular phenomena and interpreting it in a spiritual context or a, or a paranormal context, and it's really hard to get those things to be reproducible. Um, and, and I think that's it. It the filter of science, uh, in some sense, can can be uh, it can preclude a positive result because of the nature of the way the experiments have to be put together. Well, I, I think that's an important. Uh, place to begin our discussion of theosophy and the golden dawn and the OTO because these groups are talking about magic and certain kind of uh, paranormal or supernatural or transcendent things that they claim are scientifically provable. And this is the important thing about occultism. Occultism arose in this context of science at the end of the 19th century and that 
they said that they were using the scientific method to prove occult phenomenon. And now we, remember, we need to the the word occult just literally means hidden, uh, but occultism uh, arose in the 1870s as a result of all of these different ideas and esoteric currents coming together in a context of science. And then the appearance, the rhetoric, uh, and even sometimes the uh, performance of scientific uh, experimentation resulted in claims of occult nature. So within theosophy, there was a series of experiments done by Leadbeater and Annie Besant that they called occult chemistry. And using their clairvoyant powers, they claimed to be able to go and look at all of the different atoms uh, and talk about that they're occult structures in the astral plane. And they use diagrams, they use tables and charts, and over time, the, these kinds of representations started to have color, started to have all of the kinds of trappings of science, and therefore it became provable to people. Um, and this is this is still the the rhetoric, right? And then would say, well, then how do we understand what these claims of clairvoyance and astral? Uh, projection and astral objects, what is that based on? They turn around and they would use vibrations. And then they would show or claim, make uh, various comparisons between what they're experiencing and legitimate scientific experiments with vibrations and waves and, and things like that. So there was this attempt in occultism to use the rhetoric and appearance of science, but to gut and cut out the epistemology. How, th how things were known was not objective. You had to have clairvoyant powers or you had to be trained or initiated. And that's the, the subtle difference in what we can see with occultism uh, at, in this time period. So okay. can you unpack that a little bit? So when I'm using the term epistemology, this simply means how do we know something is, is real or is, is knowledge? How do we know it's true? So within the scientific method, we have notions of uh, objectivity, observability, independence, and therefore anybody can approach it. This epistemology is removed in occultism and replaced with one that, first of all, claims that there's a spiritual level to materiality, and this is being brought back from the kind of um, notions of what the, the world was before uh, the arising of science, and instead that there was this connection between the divine and the material world. So that epistemology says that there's a continuity of being from the celestial to the terrestrial coming, this is uh, coming out of kind of uh, notions of emanation in Plato. And so this notion of reality is reinstituted. And then how is that information accessible? It's accessible only to a few trained elite, those who are either chosen by a divine source or naturally have some kind of uh, access. So they're either naturally clairvoyant or they're under the training of some initiated master or tra uh, somebody of higher knowledge who then authorizes them to um, practice the, the magic. And so that's what we see in Theosophy and the Golden Dawn and continuing into uh, with Crowley coming out of the Golden Dawn and going into the OTO. So the, the basis in which all of those organizations are working on are claims of science, but the science that they understand is one that has a different epistemological base of spiritual materialism. Interesting. And we will break here and then look at the underpinnings of all that in part two of this interview. Sounds great. Look forward to continuing the conversation. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and today you heard part one of my conversation with John Crow about the rise of Western esotericism in the 19th century. This is leading to the story of the secretive magical orders and the man who some called the Great Beast, Aleister Crowley. 
We'll hear more about that soon. Monster Talks, an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please, share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thanks again for listening. that you can now subscribe to Skeptic Magazine digitally? Just grab our free Skeptic Magazine app, currently compatible with iOS, Android, PC, Mac, Kindle Fire, Kindle Fire HD, and BlackBerry Playbook. Head over to skeptic.com magazine app to find out more and download more of your favorite Skeptic content.